The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. Episodes 1 and 2 of Season 1 are ready for you and your students to play today, and it's completely free. To learn more about Classcraft and the new story mode, simply visit classcraft.com slash oneducation. Year two of a program, that's where the growth is. The first time, it's just like, what, what's going to happen? And if we never try, if we never know, what a missed opportunity. Welcome to, uh, this is the second live podcast on education at Impact EDU 2019. Thanks for coming, everybody. Today, we're joined by the tech rabbi, Michael Cohen. Um, Michael is uh, the director of, is it innovation at uh, a, a school in LA. He's a speaker everywhere, world traveler lately, um, and the writer of this I just ruined Glenn's notes. This amazing book, Educated by Design, which I'm reading for the third time and still finding new things to write down and take notes on. Um, so welcome to the, to the show, to the live show. Yeah. Michael. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm a returning guest, but first, uh, first time live. Right. So be here and chat with you guys. As we go through this process, we're going to ask Michael a few different questions on all kinds of different topics, including things that we find or we have found within the book itself and other, other just relevant topics. But we are going to have hopefully some amazing questions from you as you're thinking about things. We're going to pass that to uh, the audience to go ahead and ask those questions directly to Michael. Um, so that will come in the second half, let's call it that. So Michael... I'm an instructional coach, former Spanish teacher of 20 years, and I found this phenomena that's happening, or even it previously has happened within schools, both with our students and even our educators, where we fear being creative. And that's because we fear being judged by others on this kind of creativity slide scale. You state in your book that, and I have this poster up, and several teachers have commented on it. I have it up, and I have a little logo there for you. It says, creativity is a mindset, not an art set. How do we get away from that kind of, number one, that fear? Um, and then how do we make that shift from thinking that creativity is something that belongs to the arts or skill, some type of thing, and, and rather it's something that's in our own minds? That's a, that's a great question. So I, I, have a, I have an art and design background. Before getting into education, I thought I was going to be a famous artist. I had New York art shows. and. As I was looking at creativity in education and my, my own way of, of leveraging the creative process, I, I saw that this, this way of thinking was so critical. And, and the ones that succeed with the art set, it starts with this thought process. When I said, you know, creativity is a, is a mindset, not an art set, so the art teachers, any art teachers in the crowd right now? Yeah, so they got kind of mad at me. And I was like, look, I, I mean, I, I went to art school. I, I, I am an artist. I'm a designer. It wasn't a cheap shot. And it wasn't to discredit, but the arts don't get to keep creativity like locked up, and it's exclusively for them. So what I really tried to set out to do in this book was to sort of try to guide the readers towards a new working definition of creativity that we would kind of partner in. So some might feel like it's creativity and leadership or creativity in the way that we collaborate, creativity in the way that we choose different types of technology to impact our, our presentations, the way that we support learners, however it manifests, but to really look at not just the expressions that traditionally define creativity, oh, artists, music, dance, culinary, that it's really this those famous artists, those incredible dancers, they're trying to share a message, and it's so important to know that so that we can then sort of reverse engineer and look at that thought process in our own lives when we look at creativity. And it's funny that... Um you know, we do this podcast, and this podcasting is a creative art expression, um, but teaching is creative too, right? Like the actual act of teaching, and all the best, I think all of the best teachers, or all the best 
teaching practice is also like a heavily creative practice. So it's it's almost ingrained in being an educator to be creative, don't you think? Absolutely. The way that you look at your learners, the way that you consider how to engage them, how to support them, the new opportunities that can can happen in the classroom. This requires a, a very powerful yeah. level of problem solving. And that, that's what creativity is. It is a problem solving process. It just is easier, I guess, to manifest it via an art but it's more fulfilling, I think, to manifest it in building a community and building connections. It's funny, as I'm thinking through this, though, it's also hard. Like, it's, that's the hard work of teaching, too, though, is that creative. It's pushing yourself to constantly be doing something new. If we did the same thing every time we taught, like, um, you, you know, I used to tell the story of my first year when I did, was in a placement. I had a, a teacher throw a, a giant three-ring binder down on the table and say, I've, and she was so proud, uh, you know, I've taught this for 20 years. It's amazing, but it was work like it was a binder full of worksheets, right? And it was like um, it, it was not creative, and it was uh, I I didn't understand it. I couldn't wrap my head around how you could you know have this three ring binder and teach the exact same thing for twenty years and not really like the the images and the the text and everything was from nineteen seventy five, and I, I was like, yeah. But it's it's the hard it's hard work, and some teachers or you know, um, get out of the idea that, you know, they always have to improve and grow and develop and that, that, because that process is difficult, right? Yeah. Totally. Um, let me just, let me just touch on that. Do that. I, I, I want to share a really exciting story. So there was, uh, I was at a K eight school for, for almost six years. I was their director of ed tech. And we went from a computer lab, barely Wi-Fi in the building, to a one-to-one Apple um, school. <laughs> and I, I met with a third grade teacher, and she said, listen, Michael, I could have taught you in third grade. I'm going to give you one chance to come into my classroom and create some sort of meaningful experience, because that was like my fancy term for like awesome stuff, with technology. One chance. And if it works, we're going to collaborate a lot. And if it doesn't, it was nice working with you. <laughs> very upfront, very upfront. But I, I appreciate the transparency. So we, we looked at a Native American research project. Each group gets a Native American tribe. They create some sort of presentation in keynote or PowerPoint. And then we go through the drudgery of these presentations where these third graders are either reading the board or reading index cards and everyone's falling asleep and there's no real learning happening. And we... I, I want to say we redefined it if we're looking at the SAMR model. The students used Book Creator, and they created these interactive books that taught their peers about the other Native American tribes that they didn't uh, in, interact and engage with the information. The teacher did no preview lesson, no general summarized lesson. It was all focused on the students facilitating learning. They created these incredible interactive books that had drawings and audio and text and just really, really just rich, powerful visuals. We could not get the students to leave to go to recess because they did not want to leave the classroom and engage and stop engaging with their students' work, nice, so yeah. their peers' work. So they, they facilitated learning. There was student agency. There was student voice. This was before Flipgrid and the you know, awesome trend of, of student voice being you know, a constant hashtag on, on Twitter. And she, we, we did a review, we did a reflection, and we actually ranked the different skills, the different outcomes of before, 20 years worth of presentations, and what we just did. And she, she said that the students, they loved it. But that's not where the story ends. Three years later, these third graders are in sixth grade. I was like, so tell me about the Navajo. And this kid is like, all right, I'll just tell you. It, it, was, it was locked in their memory because of the engaging and powerful and meaningful way that technology could facilitate a very creative way of, of showcasing information. So let's talk about reflection for a minute. Um, 
I've been super reflective the last couple of years. I talk about this a lot. Um, it helps to be outside the classroom. So I, I, I taught for seven years, um, and, and now I'm not in the classroom. So I'm thinking about the thing, the missed opportunity, mostly the missed opportunities to be, if I was perfectly honest, I'm thinking about all the things I didn't do or I screwed up on, um, which was a lot. Um, but also reflecting on the way that we teach, just in general, the way that we teach. And I, I think it's great that you... After this whole great creative process that, that involved redefining an entire lesson, you reflected on it. And you, you, you worked with that teacher to talk about how it went and what could be potentially done better. And, and I love this quote from the book um, where you talk about these two questions, what good will I do today and what good have I done today? Um, because I'm, I'm kind of going through that myself where I'm, I'm totally taking stock of my days, um, being more intentional about that with my work. Um, and I'm wondering how we can give advice to educators on how they can be more reflective in their creative processes and their teaching process as well. Any administrators in the room? All right, cool. <laughs> just, just wanted to... I would, I'll say what I'm going to say anyway, but I just wanted to see, you know, what, what the hand raise would, would be. So, I love the word experiment. There's all these other industries that they get to experiment. And then for some reason, we're in education, we're, in, we're interacting with the growth of human beings, emotionally, intellectually, their skill capacity, and we have to get it right all the time. And not just like, it can't even be average, like C's are basically F's, right? It's gotta be an A, at worst a B plus. And if it's a B plus, you know, rabbit comb, what could I do to get an A? Right. So the same happens, I, I think, with educators is that we, we put this pressure on us that we have to knock it out of the park the first time. And if we can't, then we shouldn't. And I love the, the quote from, from Voltaire, you know, perfect is the enemy of done, because you have to just try and see what's gonna happen. Now that doesn't mean don't plan and like, you know, don't you know, put in effort, but you have to just try and experiment and see what is possible. And then that reflective piece is, you know, in, unless you're retiring next year, there's growth, there's potential growth. And this year two of, it, of a learning experience, year, yeah. year two of a program, that's where the growth is. The first time it's just like, what, what's gonna happen? And if we never try, if we never know, what a missed opportunity. So a huge topic, uh, both at this conference and has been probably for the last few years, is the concept of social-emotional learning. Um, there's a chapter in the book called Empathy Inspires Creativity. And I love this story that you share in there where you teach a writing course for eighth grade students. And you state that you start the class by asking a simple question to the students. Why do you hate writing? And I thought that was so like, whoa. And then the responses that you, that you actually received, I think, are really authentic, which you stated that nine times out of 10, the students state that it's because they're forced to write on topics their teachers chose rather than they chose. So it, it's kind of a concept about trying to find uh, the opportunity to give students voice, obviously, but also, uh, obviously, as a teacher, using empathy to go ahead and, and teach, whether we're teaching about writing or reading or whatever it might be that we want it to be something that the students actually get to choose. Can you speak more on that? Yeah. So I think the two, the two parts. The first piece about empathy, it, it's the difference between empathy and sympathy are, are vast. But sometimes we, we look at, at sympathy or, or we, we end up casting judgment instead of empathizing because we, we, we genuinely want to help the students. We genuinely want to fix the, the issues at hand. But the, the role of empathy in, in, in life, but specifically in, in education for ourselves and to help give our students that skill, is that it allows us to be flexible and adapt and really search for not necessarily the easiest, but the best possible way to connect with learners, to help learners connect with the learning. And it also helps just being a great human being. Mm -hmm. I, I think the world could use a lot more empathy uh, right now, uh, especially in, uh, in, in, our, in our country. Thanks for visiting. <laughs> Canada, right? the second I'm happy to be here. Is, the second piece about you know, this agency, this, this student voice is, at what point do we trust our students? 
Like, is that what it is? I, I'm curious, you know, for you to think about this and maybe ask some follow-up questions at the, the second part is like, why don't the students get to have this level of agency and ownership over the content that they create? And you know, whether or not we're reading you know, the canon of literature and, and having them analyze it, is there a way that we can give them more freedom, more opportunity to write what they care about? And not like one of the things that we, we sometimes do is like the journaling, like write about, and then you tell them in their life, yeah. like write about your weekend. And I've heard this time and time again, I have um, you know, not had the opportunity although I, I can't imagine how fulfilling but difficult it would be to be in a, a community where talking about the weekend could give nightmares to students and then they have to write that or have to lie about, well, I didn't eat, I didn't eat much, my father wasn't home, someone was drunk, there were drugs. So even when you're, you're trying to give them this agency to like write about like their life, maybe that's not a good space. Maybe it's, as in the book, writing about horses and horseback riding and this love of equestrian you know, culture. But it's, it's, it's like, give them that chance to figure that out and don't wait till eighth grade. I, I had a student who clearly had, I, I mean, we believed it was ODD um, and wouldn't engage in class at all. And um, we were doing computer science projects. He was young, so we were teaching them, for example, how to do WordPress, Google Docs, teaching them how to use Google Docs so they can type something in class and put a picture on it and stuff like that. And uh, this was such a great lesson for me as an educator because I, I totally had that like set thing, talk about whatever, um, and gave them. And it wasn't clicking with this student at all. Um, and then I, I, I shared that kind of feedback with their parents at a parent-teacher meeting. Um, and so we started, I, I was starting to try to pivot to trying to find out, the, the mom said, he, you know, though, what's funny is that I, if he goes home, when he goes home, um, he totally does want to go on Google Docs and, and write something. Um, and he goes and he writes about cars. He goes and writes about Ferraris and Porsches and these these interesting fancy cars, and it just it like the light went off in my head that it was like, do I care what he's writing about? Not really. I, I care that he's writing and I care that he's learning the things that he needed to learn. So you know, from now on, er everything that this student did was centered around his interests, and it was like a. Might as well have been a whole different student at that point. And what you talked about there just a second ago also made me think about how creation, it's not just about empathy, but also equity, and how creation provides an opportunity for um, different groups, um, minorities and people of color, to express their points of view and their, their worlds and their experiences, and then have the agency to, to share those with other people as well, because those are unique experiences in and of themselves, right? Yeah, I, I think that, that this device, I don't know about you, but I use this device 10 times more than I use my laptop, you know, my $2,000 MacBook, my fancy iPad, all these expensive pieces of technology, even if you're a Chromebook school. Most schools don't allow this. Or I just heard some, some uh, educator talking earlier uh, that students get caught because they turn in a dummy phone and they have like the real oh phone God. on them. And it's like, that's... That's so smart. Like, first of all, I'm impressed. <laughs> oh, that yeah, right? That is <laughs> strategic skill set. I don't know where they learned it from. Probably some cool YouTube video. But how can we... Wow. Students have these. Yeah. Students have these. They have some sort of internet connection. Maybe not broadband, but they have their you know, 3G, 4G. You know, some places 5G. They have content creation platforms. And they, and they love it. They love their TikTok. They love their Snapchat. They love their Instagram. They love to curate and communicate. And we're not giving them the tools, per se, to empower them to create meaningful content. So they're using it however they use it as age appropriate. They use it for entertainment. But being able to give them a vehicle that they understand that if they're passionate and they care about something, their voice can be heard. And there are millions of people ready and waiting to listen if you just put yourself into that mode of creating and consistently creating. So, and 
to, to actually carry forward from that, because you actually talk a little bit about this in your book, about content creators and content creation, and how, um, what's the 200 to 500 videos is how long it takes, you know, the average content creator to hit, to, to be something where they actually feel like they're making meaningful content that's resonating with people. Um, my son loves streaming on, we do it together, we make videos together now. Um, what do you say, and, and actually, the other thing that's funny is I've seen you on TikTok as well, dancing hilariously Guilty. on TikTok. <laughs> and I'm curious what you say to kids in particular, but I mean, frankly, anyone who wants, well, let's actually frame this. What, what would you say to a student who wants to be a YouTuber? It's a good question. Uh, so the first thing is go for it. Just start right now. Uh, they'll, they'll sober up real quick at how difficult that is right. to build community, to sh not to show your value in a, in a saturated market, but to be able to differentiate yourself and, and make yourself interesting and exciting. And, and then like, what are, what are the, you know, sort of the, the, the new approach to digital citizenship of not just like being safe, yes, be safe, of course, you know, be safe when you walk across the street, be safe when you fly to another state, but how can you be thoughtful and intentional in the types of content that you are creating? But a YouTuber, at least while the um, economy is good, is a legitimate and viable profession sure where you can showcase your insights and your passion around things that you love and people will consume that content and you can create an income from it. That, that, is, that is very real. And if we think it's a joke or we, we don't believe it, if you're sitting in the audience right now and you still don't believe it, you know, you're free to have that opinion. But the, the reality is, is that it is a viable profession, but it requires an incredible level of, of development and of time and commitment to, to making something that, that has value for others. I think Ninja made like $15 million last year. Yeah, yeah. $15 million. Guy plays Fortnite for a living. Yeah, so you, there's only one of those. And then there's like the one, the one young uh, gentleman that won the cash, the biggest cash prize for for Fortnite mm -hmm. right. competition. It's a kid. It was like a million, a million plus purse. Um, you know, two years ago, ESPN mocked esports and said we would never have a ticker at the bottom of the TV show. Jokes on them. Showcasing, and now you know, Ninja's on the front cover of ESPN, right? So it's, um, you know social proof, right? That people speak and that, that, that creates the reality. So it doesn't matter what a bunch of you know, higher ups and people say, that the people have spoken and the internet and social media is, is a real viable platform for, for new professions to be created. Talking about social media, um, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, where not only our students are living at, but where we, if we're honest with ourselves, that's, that's the space that we live at. And inside of the book, you're talk, you, you talk about storytelling and how it is the future. And it is the essence, basically, of all of these social media networks. They're telling stories out there. And it says this is how we will develop the next generation of both our readers and our writers. How can we apply those same uh, you know, amazing ways that social media basically sucks us in and have that kind of dynamic, uh, I don't know, if exchange or uh, writing that happens there in our classrooms. Yeah. So I want to just have a disclaimer before I respond. Uh, I'm not proposing that you need to bring TikTok into your first grade classroom. Uh, we have COPA SIPL compliance. We have to uh, ensure that our students are, are safe, aware, and knowledgeable, and that we are engaging in, in age-appropriate platforms. So I actually don't like some of the, the social media conversation I've seen where TikTok is not appropriate for our students, so let's make TikTok templates in Google Slide and create fake TikToks. Mm. Like, either, either it's TikTok or it's not yet TikTok. But to make fake social media content because the platform is not safe, appropriate, or just the right time for the students, I don't feel that that's authentic. And I think the students see through it. And all it's going to do is get the students to want to go on it when they're not. Yeah, they'll go on TikTok at night. Yeah, not, 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 not around you. Right. So, and then there's, of course, like the balance of, of screen time and consumption and, and even the, the balance of content creation, which you can you know, consume yourself with the creation process as well. 
But I think that there's ways to build students' storytelling capacity, both verbal and visual. I think the ability for students to script write and to be able, we, we, had, a, um, we had an overnight um, school event. We went to, to this mountain um, resort and, and, and had, a, had an event over the weekend just before I flew here. And they did this senior skit where they do this like comedy routine where they sort of poke fun at all the teachers that they love. Like if you're selected, like you're, you're one of the cool teachers. And you, they then celebrate one of the students created the entire play. They, they created the script, they created the transitions, they chose the, uh, you know, the students that would best represent um, you know, kindly poking fun of their teachers and, and mannerisms and things of that nature, but it's like, where does that skill come from? So we've created experts in the five paragraph essay with the hook and the transition and the introductory sentences and, and, and we've not given them the opportunity to diversify their writing and I think script writing, when, when you're getting on screen. So I, I'm a, I have built up a skill that now has a perception it's natural. I can just hop on camera and create a quick five minute vlog and not need to take 15 takes. And it just works. It took me a decade of, of building and learning and reading and discovering ways to build those skills. Meanwhile, I have a friend who borrowed my studio space in, in my office and I, I didn't want to like sit around. I, I let him use the space. I went and I check in in an hour and he's created three minutes of content because he has created take 55. <laughs> and he's trying to get it exactly perfect. Yeah. Perfect is, is not just the enemy of done. It's the enemy of like getting nothing done. So it's really important to diversify the opportunities for students to build their visual storytelling capacity. I had some sessions uh, over the past uh, day and a half on, on Adobe software, on, on Apple software, how you can create strong, engaging visuals, animations, content, but then it's that verbal piece, building strong, confident, confident orators that are going to be able to communicate ideas and, and not just a confident way, but like a fun, exciting, get some laughs. I, I haven't been so successful so far with that, but I'm, I'm hopefully in the, in the second half to get you guys to feel like a little more alive right now. <laughs> Got a little bit there, okay. work in progress. So I think right now what we're gonna do is, uh, please raise your hand, Mary is going to walk over with the microphone and give you an opportunity to go ahead and ask uh, Michael some questions about anything related to what we've been speaking about or if you are familiar with the book or not. Uh, questions that you have for Michael. Don't all wait for that one person. You have no questions, it was so clear, great. Come on. Well, I'll Someone. ask one. Okay. Yes. All right, good. Michael. Get it started, Mary. Yes. Nice. I'll be, I'll be very appropriate. Um, Michael, what is, how do you respond to even a child or an adult? I hear this so often, um, people coming up and saying, well, I'm not creative. How do you address that? So it's, 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 it's a conversation that needs to take place. Everyone is, is unique in their journey. And I, I have that illustration in the book, that, that moment where we're judged by some, something that we define, usually it's when we're younger, as something creative and we're, we're told by someone, it's a peer, it could be, you know, God forbid a teacher, but that's happened to me, like that's not creative. And it's so important to help our students build that resilience but then to also, which I try to do in the book, is like we need to rebuild the definition of creativity and showing other ways besides art. But then everyone can be artistic. It's just you have to put the time in. But if you don't have the passion or the desire, so there are other ways to express it. But it really, it really has to be a personal conversation. Uh, I've tried my best in the book to create like a, a general approach to how you might tackle that with your students or with yourself. But it's really about building that confidence and belief in yourself that, that, that can help you build your creative courage. I'm going to follow up with something. Um... Is it something that we are doing also as parents, or maybe even in early childhood, that is related to this creativity thing? Because you, you write that somewhere around the age of six, the current education model, I'm talking about six years old, you're talking a first grade kid. The education system basically uh, purges students of creativity, curiosity, and wonder. Mm. It's actually my biggest worry and fear of my own kids is not that they won't do well academically because they are doing well academically. It's more that 
eventually the system could take away their passion for just learning, which, you know, yeah. it, it's innate in humans as far as we want to do it. But I'm talking about learning within the structures of, you know, what what we currently have as far as in schools. So where you become resentful at, you know, all of the worksheets for homework or whatever it might be as far as practices that may not be the best things that we're doing. But if by the age of six, you're purging creativity, can you expand upon that? Like, what can we actually do? Because as a parent, I, I was concerned as I read that. I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's devastating. Who here teaches high school? Okay, what's the P word? It's a curse word, P word. What is it? To PR, pro, proj, project, projects. <laughs> I didn't know where he was going with this, but it. I was like, yeah. well, so you, uh, this took a turn. <laughs> projects, and they're celebrated, they're appropriate, they're awesome, they're encouraged in you know, early elementary. And there's just this, there's this magical point where a project is like an adolescent, childish behavior, activity, waste of time, not a, not a real adult thing. Then you get into um, the real world. We're the only ones that call it the real world, the, the people that are in the real world, I guess. I, I think we're also in the real world, but they just, they're just in the world. So they work on projects all day long. There are multiple people involved. They're responsible for different components. There are billion-dollar companies built on project management. Monday.com totally. is a billion-dollar unicorn startup based on project management. And it's, I think it's, it's a disservice because that is where that creativity comes from. Students discovering their innate skills and interests that they can be part of something bigger than just, let's all do the same exact thing. Let's all create a diorama. Let's mm-hmm. all create yeah. some sort of artistic experience. You know, even in the Adobe Spark session, I, I show, even though I don't like to show, here's that template. You can just throw them and then they'll just like replicate it and it'll already look beautiful based on your definition of the design. Um, there was a, a, a project, I said it, there's a project that we worked on uh, with, with eighth graders, or sorry, seventh graders. We went on a science trip. I did this two years in a row with them to Olympic National Park in upstate Washington. It's the only place in the U.S. where in a day drive you have a mile-high mountain ridge, a temperate rainforest, a, um, another type of, rain, uh, or another type of, of, uh, of forest, tide pools. And it's absolutely incredible. So I said, there are people that are not going to get to visit this incredible place that you get to go. What could we do? And they said, well, we, we write these journals. We, we do like science experiments and with the water and with the soil and the, and the flora and fauna. And, and then we fill up our journal. If we don't, we get a bad grade. So I go to the teacher. He's, uh, you know, he's been teaching science and running this trip for 30 years. And once again, you get one chance. I'm like, okay, guys. So I'm one for one, so let's, let's go for it. And they right. created documentaries. And each member of the group had to define their role based on their interests and potential strengths. So there was a scriptwriter, there was a narrator, there was the filmer who was bringing the iPad in the giant gallon Ziploc because they were nervous they were gonna drop it when they were wading across the river. There was the post-production people. So there were some people that it looked like they weren't really working during the trip, but then the three days after the trip, they were working constantly while the other ones, so to speak, took a vacation. So being able to define roles and and capture interests but show students how to engage in a group project that doesn't have the possibility that one person can just do all the work so that we can all get an A and move on with our life. Awesome. I think we have a question over here. Yes. Yes. So I am in elementary, and even there, there is no time to do projects. Yeah. Constantly up against, I'm going into the classroom trying to integrate technology into the curriculum, and I'm constantly up against the problem of, we don't have time for that. We're trying to get through what we need to do to take the tests. Mm-hmm. And so how do you address that? You know, actually, when I do a project and it only takes a half an hour, they're so amazed. And they're like, oh my gosh, that was great. It only took a half an hour. I'm like, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be this huge three week long thing, but mm-hmm. still it, it's just this belief that, that it takes too long. And they, they always put it as their last thing on the list. Yeah, the, you know, I, I, I am always excited when I can hear some educator that can 
put together a three-week-long PBL project. You know, I think that's amazing, but it's, it's not practical. And, and basically every <laughs> scenario, except for those, you know, those, those fringe moments, uh, being able to collaborate together and trying to uh, expand the time frame across multiple uh, teachers, if that is possible, it's a little harder in, in elementary because you, you are the teacher. For right for all is that yeah or do you have like a science teacher or you're like you are the teacher for your class is that? Well, I'm the technology integration person, so I go into the teacher. Oh oh oh, you have an even harder job than than the teacher because you have to convince them. Yeah. They okay, that's <laughs> right. next level. Yeah, so the micro projects you 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 said it beautifully is that thirty minute moment, that, that 50 minute moment. Like, can this be done in a short period of time and still get meaning and value out of it? Absolutely. And then there's opportunities to work on big projects, but those big projects have to have administrative buy-in. Not just you get to do it, but like they have to be invested in it. It has to have some sort of cross-discipline, cross-collaborative moment where you're leveraging the, the time and the resource and the support of others, which I know you are that extension of them and that support, but th there has to be a culture for those bigger projects. Trust. To be trust, absolutely. Yeah. Trust and, and belief in others. But small, I'm into it, which is why I love the 50-minute breakout sessions because my, my period's at, uh, at my school are 55. So if I if I can't do it with you guys in 55 minutes, how can I say we should go do this in our classroom? So I like, I like those small moments where we can begin and end in, in, a, in a small period of time. If you, if you listen to the podcast, you'll, you'll know what my, my day job is, but um, I'll expand on it a little because I think I can kind of help you answer your question too a little bit. Um, uh, so I work for a company called Logics Academy. We're Canada's largest um, educational robotics company. So, uh, and I'm head of curriculum and training. So I travel around and teach teachers how to use robots in their classrooms. And my biggest workshop, the thing I do with teachers all the time is literally modeling a very small project that they could take to their classroom and do potentially the next day. So I use dashes, and it's what we call a dash storytelling. And it's, and it's meant for that wheelhouse of dash, which is like the great kind of two to five range. But it's where they retell a story using their robots. They, they use the features of the robots, like the being able to record your voice into a dash. The dash can then speak back to you, the voices, decorating the dash, so, so putting costumes on the robot, um, painting uh, backgrounds, drawing backgrounds that the robot can drive through, and then recording all of that on an iPad or something like that, putting music against it. And now you've, and, and we do that, we, I do that workshop with teachers in as short a time as two hours. I've done, I've done it all day, I've done it in half days, but I've done it in like two hours. And I remind teachers all the time, you can literally do this tomorrow in your classroom. And while there's some nuance to doing it with kids instead of doing it with adults, I try to remind teachers all the time to don't limit your students. Don't tell them the things they can't do. Give them the time and the space to do to do this sort of thing. And I think that they'll surprise you. I think that they'll shock you, even. They will come through for you. Especially when you say, listen, we have, we're gonna make a story. We're gonna do it with Dash. I don't care what the story is, go. And they will astound you with what they can do if you give them the time and the space to actually let them astound you. Thank you for the question. Is there any other, anyone else that has a question? Just go ahead and raise your hand, because I... You could also do criticism. Like, I'm, I'm, totally. Oh, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you doubt something I said, like I'll, back, I'll try to back it up. Our, our friend Chris has a question. I do, I do. I have like a personal question for you guys. You know, we always have like these writer block times when our creativity oh. just like stops. So I actually want to hear from all three of you, like what do you do to get your creativity flowing? Like, do you sketch note? Do you do vlogs? Do you do anything that just is kind of like, this is the way I kick my thinking process off and how I get really creative myself? I feel like I need to get myself out of my own head. So ways of being able to do that for myself have to do with exercise. Uh, specifically here lately has been strangely enough, I would never have thought I would be doing this in my life, is hot yoga. Um, but what it, what it does do and what it does is makes you uh, get out of your own way. And it feels like uh, it's a way of being able to then, when you come out of that and you 
go back to whatever you're actually working on, it feels to me like it's a reset button and those blocks are in the way. Uh, meditation and those kinds of things. I, I swear I would never have, if you would have known me like five years ago, you'd have been like, what are you talking about, Glenn? But uh, it, it actually has helped a bunch in a variety of different settings, including that one that you're talking about. I'll go. Sure. So I actually talk about this in my keynote. So you've walked into my trap fantastically. Um, I realized, um, especially in the last couple years, that I was I was trying to shoehorn, cre especially creative things, in times of the day that I was absolutely just not good at it or not productive with it, um, especially in the middle of the day. If I was trying to do art or like uh, graphic design in particular, so there's two creative things that I do a lot, is a lot of writing and a lot of graphic design. And I found that I was trying to do those in the middle of the day and spinning my wheels constantly. Um, so I write in the morning. So I exercise, usually I try to exercise, story, and then I, and then I write. So like between like 7.30 and nine o'clock in the morning. And I do that because I, I think I've figured out why that's a good time for me to write and that's because it's the start of the day. My head's not full of all the things um, that I haven't done. My head's not full of the day. It's, it's empty for lack of better words. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, wake up and they start thinking about all the things they have to do that day, but I find that that, that one and a half hour window was perfect for me. So, um, and then I do a lot of graphic design stuff. If I'm on Photoshop, it's almost always at like 10 o'clock at night. Somehow, my that that hour 10 to 11, um, I can like pound out something on Photoshop, a logo, a design, a thing, and and it and and I'm sending like the people I'm working with, whoever, a text message at like 11 o'clock, Glenn or whoever, waking them up if they're sleeping. But I'm like, dude, look what I just made! It's so awesome, and I'm sending them like screenshots of my screen because I'm so pumped. But it's always at like 10 o'clock at night. So my advice is. Think about when you do things and finding the times that you that you are productive and then I'm not saying like sometimes the reality of your day is that you have to do things at, at you know times of the day. But if you can really find times where you know you're going to be productive and use those times wisely. Take advantage of that window, that 10 o'clock at night window to do that graphic design work because you know that at 10 o'clock that's when you've historically done that best work. That seemed to be something that worked for me really well. It's all, all awesome ideas. Um, for me, so there's a couple things. And one of them, I, I never actually thought I'd be employing empathy in this context, but I was about to say, go for a walk. Um, don't go outside. I mean, I'm, I'm scared too, but like, it's really cold. Outside is overrated. Um, I'll be flying back to Los Angeles tonight, and it's uh, you know, low of 45, it'll be a high of 70. So I go out and I walk. Whatever. Um, yeah, but I do rock climb. Um, I'm a big rock yeah. climber. I was actually, Sunday night, I went up the street, the Minneapolis bouldering project. Super awesome place. You guys, you guys are lucky if, if, if you ever decide to check out uh, that experience. So it's, it's a, not just a physical exertion, it's a mental problem-solving exertion. There are certain ways you must solve a route to climb. Hmm. There's certain ways where you can be creative with how you do it. And there, there'll be times at my home gym where I'll climb something and people will be like, I, I would not have even thought that that would be the way to do it, but you did it, and then no one else can do it that way for you know whatever reason or you know. So that that exercise is a big piece. Um, I think finding you know the time when when things work, and then I also have found that if you're trying to engage in a project like whether it's writing, design, presentation, creation. I'll spend like 20 minutes just creating something random that is just sort of silly and playful, and it, it, it breaks down the intensity and the, and the anxiety of like making it perfect because it has to be for this thing. When I do the everyone can create, so I've gone back and forth like, oh, do I create these like very solid structured ways of teaching magic move? But then if I use a, an animal cell as like a main point of it, and everyone's in the room is like, well, I'm not a science teacher. That could alienate. That can make you disconnect. So I do these like sort of random activities just to sort of break down the, the fear of that creativity being applied in that certain way it needs to be and just let it sort of f uh, free flow. And I think those so far, you know, I'm always looking for new ones. So if you want to tweet out like, hey, I do this, I'm always looking for good advice Fantastic. on that front. 
There's there's some hacks too. Uh, in the name of sharing, I'll I'll mention one um, that I'm using a lot right now. John Meehan um, gave me this advice, and I've found actually a couple other people have spoken about it recently. Um, I, the, the, I'm writing I'm writing a book, and I've been struggling with sitting down and you know the clickety clack, uh, you know, getting getting my button gear and actually typing things. And he said, dude, pick up your phone and just start talking into your phone. And then and and just start talking, and then use the audio recordings, turn it into text, do like a speech to text program, and boom, you'll find you've written three thousand words in like in like uh, an hour and a half, and it's it, it changed everything for me. I was so stressed out about being behind, and now I can I can sit for an hour, and because obviously I can talk, um, I. You know, I write 10,000 words in a, in a day pretty easy. What, what app do you use? I, I've just been using the voice memos, but even... Um, you convert e- it to text. Uh, downloading the audio file. Oh. But, but also, just Google, Dro- Google Docs has like... A, so if I'm sitting at my desk, you open up Google Docs, and there's voice to text right in Google Docs. So I just hit record. If I'm sitting at my desk, hit record, and... That you see the words fill up right in front of you. Sometimes I get distracted by like the mistakes and stuff, so I stop. But I'm trying to learn how to like let that just let that go for now. Just just talk, and and I find that that's that's been really great. I think we have time for one more question. If anyone has a question, you've all been sitting here so great, so quiet. Anyone? Now you're holding on to this question right now, and everyone needs it answered. You just have to believe in yourself. You have to have the courage. Creative courage. I have, I think, Glenn, do you have a question? I thought you, or do we do, I have two, and I don't know which one to say. So, one, okay, yes. We talked about social media earlier, and I want to expand on it a little, because I, my wife used Vine in her kindergarten classroom back in the day. And uh, I thought it was incredibly innovative. I was like such a fan of my wife's Vine account. I couldn't believe how great it was. Um, and she was really creative with like putting stickers over the faces of the little kids. It was kindergarten class. Um, it, but I never remembered the critical, like the, I never remembered uproar over teachers using Vine. And I never remembered, and maybe there is, and I just was like, or, or not really part of the discourse. Uh, but even about like teacher Twitter and teacher YouTube. But the backlash over TikTok is real. And it's, it's sometimes, it's been, it's been crazy to be, and maybe, again, I'm more immersed in the discourse, but I guess, two-part question, should teachers be using TikTok? It's kind of the new Vine, right? But also, is, is teacher TikTok a thing? What do you think about TikTok? I know you've, been, you've used it. I love TikTok, but I also love the conversations because I get it. I get both sides of this, and I'm super interested in what do you think TikTok could be for education, if anything? So I, I momentarily made my TikTok private. <laughs> so I got in early. Nice. Freshman students aren't overly obsessed <laughs> with my dance moves. And it was the only thing that I could really figure out what to do on that app at the moment. I think we need to understand the essence of social media platforms. And, and we have to be aware and figure out ways that we can help our students uh, be guided through the process, but to really pull out, you know, some of the creative juices and some of the skills that are that are taking place on these platforms, where you know people are creating these these videos where they're like dual character by just like moving from this side to this side of the phone. They've created an alter identity and they're creating this dialogue with themselves. Things like that are just so incredible. That doesn't mean you have to be on it and creating content. Uh, there are some teachers that are doing it, and uh, it can be problematic. And it's not just TikTok. TikTok is right now because it's the newest craze. Yeah. It'll settle down a little bit. But I, I heard I heard this week that teachers aren't on Twitter because you you uh, officially represent your district no matter what, even if you put in your bio, like, opinions are my own, and you could, you know, God forbid, be fired. Like, that that's not worth it. No one's saying, like, be tech savvy at the risk of your of your livelihood and your and your, your the love of you know, the profession that you're in. But I, I think that it's important for us to, to just be aware of the power for ourselves as, as you know, for personal and professional levels, and then also just for us to be aware for what our students are doing and, and to, to really guide them through it. Because um, I, you know, I don't think that it's just like all social media is good. There's some, there's some messed up 
things on social media, like, like in the world. There's some dark places and there have been some articles that a couple people who are um, internet um, you know, safety and, and advocates in that space have been sharing things yeah. specifically on Facebook. They're like, I'm not even clicking because like, just on the title, I know that this is a horrible, you know, predatory type thing and that, that's real. So what are we doing to help bring awareness and, and knowledge and resilience to our students so that they can have you know, some sort of just awareness so that if, God forbid, they're ever in such a environment that like, they'll know like, either how to run away quickly in a digital way or just like, how to share that with, with that adult or that person that they can confide in. Because that, that piece is real. But we, we have to have knowledge of it. You can't just say, oh, TikTok is stupid and like, it's just a craze. It's, yeah, it's a stupid craze with like, hundreds of millions of 15-second right. videos that right. are published. And, and now even that has a monetization stream by, by, by teenagers. And it's, it's crazy to think that that we're in that space today. And it's an example of our kids being there, right? Our kids are there. They're playing games. They're on Twitch. If you don't know what Twitch is, if you don't know who Ninja is, please go educate yourself on who Ninja is because your kids are talking about Ninja. They're, they're talking about Twitch. They, they, they're talking about Overwatch and League of Legends, and they're talking about these games, and this is, this is their world. And whether we like it or not, you know, if we want to engage with our kids and who they are and what they are and what they're doing, this is the world that they live in, and we should be coming as close to their world as we possibly can so that we can teach them better. I think that just makes sense. I think we're good. Thanks so much for letting us be up here with you and ask you questions about your book. Um, if people are interested in getting their books signed, if, yeah, if you guys chose this. Thanks for sticking around. Yes. I know it's the tail end of a, a multi-day awesome conference. and. If, if we can keep connected on social and just you know share your thoughts and your struggles while you're in the moment, that I can you know try to make myself available to connect and work you through it. So thanks so much for being part of this. Let's give Michael a round of applause. Thank thanks, you. Michael. And thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.